All right, we're going to get started. We have a lot of ground to cover, and due to the snow, uh, we are going to be working diligently to figure out kind of how we go from here, but one of these weeks is going to be uh, cannibalized by the other, uh, but we are going to trudge through uh, and make our way through Exodus 19 and 20 this morning, and then next week we will be off for spring break. And so I know this is kind of disruptive, but we obviously can't control the weather. And so last week we're off, this week we're on, next week we're off, due to spring break, and we'll pick it back up the week after that. Sound good? All right, good. All right, let's uh, get our Bibles out, turn to Exodus 19, and uh, allow me to pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us as we open the scriptures together. Father, would you bless that? Would we recognize what we hold in our hands, not only to be true, not only to be our only rule of faith and practice, but to see it as the living and breathing Word of God that You've given us to even pierce us through and to reveal who we are and to give us the truth of Jesus Christ who is the Word. And so, Father, I pray that You would do no less than change us this morning transform us and conform us more into the image of your Son, that we would leave this place having met with one another and met with the Word and having prayed together that we would be changed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn to Exodus 19, please. In the 1980s, there was a phrase that was used among evangelical Christianity that I'm sure you have heard before, and this is what it is. Christianity is not about religion, it is about relationship. You heard that before? It's not a religion, it's about relationship. And for most of us, the idea of religion and being religious doesn't always have the sweetest taste in our mouth, does it? And so when you you hear the word religion, perhaps you think of something cold or something forced, and this isn't just true of those who are inside the church, this is certainly true of those outside the church. Uh, For years now, um, philosophers and thinkers have railed against not only religion as being perhaps untrue or worthless or a waste of time, but that religion is actually harmful for humanity. Uh, Let me give you a few examples Uh, William James, the father of American psychology, once wrote, Religion is a monumental chapter in human egotism. All right? Human egotism, that this is religion is is a form of, of narcissism. It's a form of egotism. Karl Marx once wrote, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed culture, the sentiment of a heartless world and a soul of soulless conditions. It is the opiate for the people. That is harsh. The soul of soulless condition. One of my favorite books, actually, is Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And he wrote, I say quite deliberately that the Christian religion as organized in his churches has been and still is the principal enemy of moral progress in the world. So he's saying that actually religion, again, it's not just that it's not true, it's actually the enemy of morality in the world today. Uh, Stephen Weinberg, more recently, a Nobel Prize laureate, said, With or without religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. 
But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. And so you have this sense of religion that whether or not it it is in you, that it kind of has a bad taste in your mouth, it's certainly in the world around us. As we see, uh, you know, statues and edifices of the Ten Commandments being torn down outside courthouses and this picture in our country of religion being a bad thing. The question is, as men, how is it that we see ourselves? What does it mean to be a religious man? And is that something we should strive for? And so this morning we turn our attention to Exodus chapter 19, and we turn our attention to the story of God giving humanity religion, giving us the law the Ten Commandments, and it's an amazing story, a story that probably you are familiar with at some point, again, like much of the story of Moses, that you've seen and maybe have a picture in your mind of some movie that you've seen. But as, what I want you to see is that as we truly begin to read the Word of God, in particular the story of the, of the law, the giving of the law, we're going to see something pretty profound. And it's a little bit like this. Uh, a philosopher and theologian, James K. A. Smith, this is what he has to say about religion. He says, We both believers and non-believers have a tendency to reduce religion to a systems of belief, to a worldview. As such, we kind of intellectualize religion, we turn it into something that we think, when in fact religion is something that we do, something that we practice. Faith takes practice, you might say, and I will argue that we understand something about God in those practices that we could never articulate in propositions. You could say that we know ritually, and I want you to hear this, that we absorb faith into our bodies. Okay, so what is he saying? That was long to listen to this early in the morning. Here's what he's saying. Religion is faith put into practice. That Essentially, what religion is, is putting our faith, what we believe here, and even here in our hearts, that it actually transfers into what we do with our hands and our feet. And so this morning, what I want you to know is that Christianity is, yes, a relationship. But it's a relationship that has now taken on flesh into religion. That religion, when it is true, when it is pure, when it is right, it flows out of God's relationship with us. His redemptive relationship with us that He has initiated with us. True religion is our response of faith put into practice. And so in that way, religion is not just something that we do, but it's something that we do that shapes who we are. And we are going to see this in three ways this morning. First, that we are God's treasured possession. We're God's treasured possession. Second, we are a kingdom of priests. And third, we are a holy nation. We're going to see that these three identity markers given to the people of Israel not only shaped who they were, but it very much shaped the way they lived in their relationship with God and their relationship with others. So I want you to turn your attention now to Exodus 19, verse 1. 
and read with me. It says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so they've been rescued. This is after the Exodus. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And, and there Israel encamped before the mountain, and Moses went up to God. And the Lord cowed down to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so these are our three identity markers this morning. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The first, we have been called to be a treasured possession. And this obviously speaks very much to our relationship with God. But what I want you to notice is that God is the initiator of that relationship. And we see that so clearly here. Look with me at verse 4. He says this first, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about the plagues. He's talking about passing through the Red Sea, this miraculous, extraordinary rescue of the people of Israel out of slavery. He said, you just experienced that, and then, verse 5, now, therefore... I have rescued you, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. A couple things I want you to notice. Much like the New Testament, just as like that in the Old Testament, the words now therefore are very important. And what I want you to recognize is this. What happened first? Did the Exodus happen first? Or did the giving of the law happen first? Oh, good, we're awake. Yeah, the exodus happened first. That is incredibly significant. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. The exodus happened first. First, God rescued His people, and then He gave them the law. It wasn't the other way around. We'll talk more about why that's significant in a second. So he reminds them of this rescue that they have, and then he says, therefore, if you obey my covenant. Now this word if is another curious word, especially for us as Christians, this side of the Reformation. And so we read that phrase, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. And a few things happen in us. One... The, the Reformed part of us reads that, and it kind of makes us shudder a little bit. Okay, what is this saying? If you obey me, then you'll be my treasured possession. That doesn't seem quite right, does it? But then there's another part of you that's just practical. It's a man. It says, well, like a man I met with this last week, that I, I gave him John 15 that we're going to read in a minute. And I asked him, what does it mean to abide? And he said, I don't know, and I don't like this. Because I don't know what abide means, 
and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so there's a very practical part of us as men that we say, you know what, I would love for this just to be spelled out, God. Tell me what I am to do as a man, and I'll do it. And so really we live this life in tension as, as good, reformed men, trying to understand, well, what does it mean if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. But remember, all of this came after verse 4 that said, first, God rescued. Then the commandment came. First, God rescued. Then the commandment came. And honestly, it reminds me a lot of the words of Jesus in John 15. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read it to us might be worth for you to look at it if you've never read it closely for yourself. This is Jesus' teaching on abiding. The very passage I gave to a man this past week. You'll notice the logos in our church have a vine going through it. This, this passage is very important for us as a church. Because it really it speaks of what it is that we are called to do as Christians and really what we are called to do as men and that is to abide. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burn. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You look at two things. Verse 9. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. If that's true, then how much does God love you as a man? As much as the Father loves His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? And so I wonder this morning, what does the love of God do for you as a Christian man? How does that shape who you are? How does how God loves you in the same way that He loves His very own Son, Jesus Christ? Does that change you at all? Does that affect you at all? Because really, that's what we're talking about. We talk about original religion. We're talking about affection. We're talking about how God's love actually transforms us. And so, Jesus tells us, the way that the Father loves me, I love you. And then he says, and so if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So what do we do with that? It's just like the Exodus. We were rescued first, but then we were given a law. Why? We'll talk more about this in a second. So that we would know how it is we're called to respond to the love of God in our life. So we would know what it means to be transformed, to be changed by it. To recognize that to be a man, a Christian man, means not only do we need to believe here and know the right things of the Word, but we need to believe here to be changed by it in our own hearts, but it can't stop there. It has to flow to our hands and to our feet that literally it must change every single thing about us. To use the words of Jesus, you're called to bear fruit. You're called to bear fruit. 
Reminds me as well as Paul in Ephesians, saying that we were once dead in our trespasses of sins, but God, being rich in His mercy because of His great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says, goes on and says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, the result of works, that no one may boast. But then he says, For we are his workmanship, and we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are not saved by good works, but you've been called to do good works. And they are intimately linked. Your salvation and your life every day after that salvation changing the way that you live, not in order to earn back that salvation, which you could never do, but recognizing because God has rescued you, your life has been changed forever. You're a treasured possession first, then you are called to live as if you are treasured. Second, we're a kingdom of priests. Look at verse 9, the middle of verse 9 with me in Exodus 19. First, your treasured possession. God treasured you first. He rescued you first. Then the law came. Second, you are a kingdom of priests. And this really speaks to our relationship with the world around us. It says, when Moses told the words of the people to God, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. It seems curious to our modern eyes and ears to hear this, but essentially what Moses has been instructed is that he's to consecrate the people. He's to wash them. He's to make sure that they are pure before they go before the Lord. And not only to be pure, but there are boundaries set. That, that really they cannot get that close to God unless they would be utterly destroyed because of their sinfulness. The only one who's allowed directly into the presence of God is one man, and his name is Moses. And so we see this picture begin to unfold that our sinfulness, our immorality, our uncleanness, not only is a source of division in the world around us and immorality, but it actually is a separation. It's a barrier between us and God. That God and His holiness cannot be in the presence of sin without having to exact His justice upon it immediately. And so, for that reason, He has set one man allowed into His presence, and that man's name is Moses. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain so that all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. All right, so here's this amazing scene. After being consecrated, the people of God on the third day go to the base of the mountain, and they are witnessing God in His glory descend on Mount Sinai. And it's such a powerful display that they are trembling. They are afraid. I wonder, when's the last time you've been afraid? You've been in awe of the power of God. And in awe, as they tremble, they're looking up at this mountain, and the Lord calls to Moses, and one man goes up into the smoke, into the fire, into the thunder. Moses. And so we see a new display of Moses' call, of what now he's called to do after leading the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. What is Moses to do now? He is to be a mediator. He's to be a mediator. He is to be God's mediator between himself and the people, where the people cannot go up the mountain themselves lest they be crushed. Moses has gone on their behalf to meet with God, and then to come back and deliver God's word to them. He's a mediator. And as the law began to unfold, especially the ceremonial law, we see that this role of mediation was dispersed to the priesthood, the high priest. It was called to mediate between God and man, and not only to do so with the law, but to do so with making a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And so this is why Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 3, if you remember, says that Jesus is greater than Moses. Because he's a greater mediator than even Moses was. As great as a mediator Moses was in going up the mountain that day and coming down and delivering the very law of God, Jesus is even a greater mediator. And this is what he says In chapter 8, Hebrews 8, he says, We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, and a tent that the Lord set up. Now, if we on earth, he says, he would not be a priest of all, since all the priests who offer gifts according to the law, for they serve a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that I show you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry much that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises, promises that he fulfilled himself in his death and resurrection. Paul says in First. Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man that man Jesus Christ and so we just see this picture this priestly office beginning to form mediation between God and his holiness and man and his sinfulness first with Moses then with Jesus Christ but then there's a curious thing that we must remember we're told that we are 
as the people of God to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what on earth does that mean? How are you, a man, Christian man, called to be a priest? Because that's what this says. As a member of the people of God, you are called to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you're called to do what I'm doing as a pastor? Or to take priests even more literal and say, well, I guess we should all be priests in the Catholic or Anglican church? What What does that mean? A priest is a mediator between God and man. That's his role. First with Moses, then with Jesus. Now, as Christians, little Christs, we too are called to be priests. To be the mediator between God and the world. To be God's mediation between God and the world. To be mediators of the gospel itself. In other words, God has sent you and I to be the picture of himself in the world that he has created. And if that seems heavy to you, it should feel heavy to you. In other words, what he's saying is that you and I are God's plan A. (laughs) We're it. How is God going to transform the world? Well, he's got a plan, and his plan is you and me. (laughs) And so if that makes you chuckle a little bit this morning, like it does me, Because you recognize, well, God, you've chosen a bunch of numbskulls. (laughs) And then you begin to remember the story and think, wow, well, the first 12 disciples, what were they? (laughs) They were a bunch of numbskulls. And then you remember the story we've been studying, and you remember Moses, and what was he? And you begin to realize, wait a minute, God really does pick a bunch of imperfect people to do extraordinary things. And that's always been what he does. Why? It's for his glory. And he's picked you and me to be his mediation, to be a bunch of priests who are called to be no less than the power of God on display in the world. How? In the same way that he descended upon this mountain, his power was on display. You and I, as Mark preached this last weekend, We're walking testimonies of the power of God. That God can change the hardest of sinner. And so when you begin to think about why religion is so important, you begin to recognize, well, in so much as we appear to be transformed, you are a living and walking testimony that the gospel is power, that it works, that it transforms people. You are called in the way that you live, the way that you speak, the way that you conduct business, the way that you are a father, the way that you are a husband. That it is no less than a priestly role, every single one of those. That God's presence in your life is so transforming that you now bring God to bear His presence, His reality on every single thing that you do. You're a kingdom of priests. And lastly, as we end this morning... A holy nation. You are a holy nation. And this speaks to our religion. This is the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. God's law given to man. And I want you to notice though, before he gives the Ten Commandments, what does he say first? Look with me in verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. Before he gives a single command, what does he do? He reminds them that I've rescued you. I've rescued you. I've rescued you, and so therefore, because I have rescued you, here are my commandments for you. Whether or not the Israelites kept or broke the commandments, would that change the fact that they have been rescued out of slavery from Egypt? No, it can't. They've already been rescued. They've already been rescued. Ways to think about it are this. Mark Strom says it this way. The Lord did not give the law to establish his relationship with the people. He gave it because he already had a relationship with the people. Anthony Salvaggio, the Ten Commandments were not given as a means of earning redemption, but rather a means of expressing gratitude for that redemption. Or the way I would say it to you this morning, the Ten Commandments are our religious response to the gracious relational redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. It's our wedding vow. In response to what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in our rescue, and so it's interesting that as you look at the uh, Ten Commandments, we won't look at each of them in depth, we don't have time. I invite you to do that, uh, but we don't have time this morning to do it as a group. But we are going to look at them as a whole. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll begin to notice something, that the first five commandments really, especially the first four, but really the first five speak to our relationship with God, how we relate to Him. The last five, with how we relate to the world around us. I'm not going to read them all so I can get you to your groups. But if you notice, just the first couple, you shall have no other gods before me, verse 3. That's the first commandment. Second commandment, you shall not make yourself a carved image. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's all about how we relate to God. When you get to the sixth commandment, verse 13, you begin to see things like, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. That in other words, God's rescue of you should change the way that you relate to Him and relate to the world around you. And so I leave you with this. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's interesting. In verse 9, Peter borrows this very language for the church. And this is what he calls the church. Listen to what he says. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Brothers, God has rescued you. He has rescued you. And now as men, you are called to live a life in light of that rescue, according to that rescue, in response to that rescue. A life that is religious, but religiously devoted to a response of what Christ has done for you on the cross for your sins. Let me pray for you and send you to your groups this morning. Father, I pray that as we study this more in depth in our groups, as we think about the questions before us and even look at some of the scripture that we couldn't get to, even to look at the Ten Commandments in more depth and detail, Lord, would you call us to them? Would you enable us to keep them? Would you help us to recognize that you have called us by name and you have rescued us from the pit of slavery so that now we could live a life worthy of the calling that we have received? 
And as Peter says, that we would proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.